0: Well, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Last week, we were here on a, uh, a, a pivotal passage where, where Jesus just announced that he, in his person, was the, was the river of spiritual life. He was an act, the aqueduct dispensing spiritual life out into the world for anyone who would have it. Shocking words. Announced this in the middle of uh, one of the sacred feasts of the temple at Jerusalem. Marched into the middle of the center of the power, the political and religious power of the ruling elite in Jerusalem. Knowing that they were out to get him uh, and announced who he was. And he remained unscathed because they were unable to touch him. And so today we're going to start, we're going to look at the aftermath of that event. What happens in the crowd and then John's going to take us as he's able to do as the narrator behind the scenes into the secret chambers of the ruling chief priests and the Pharisees to see um, how they handled, uh, how they're handling all this happening. (laughs) Uh, And so would you please, uh, one more time, would you stand as we listen intently together to God's inerrant and inspired word. This is John chapter seven, verse 40. And when they heard these words, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him in? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we... uh, your word, you tell us, is like a double-edged sword cutting between our joints and our marrow and our soul and our spirit, and we can infer from that that it can be a painful process, Lord, but we know that you, that you break to mend and to heal, and so we pray that your word would penetrate us in our hearts, Lord, and show us all the ways where we seek to place ourselves, where we seek to place our reason where we seek to place our religious systems above your revelation of who you are. We pray you would show us the end result of that, and that seeing that in in technicolor. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us in our hearts and in our spirits to seek you and to humbly submit ourselves to you and to trust you, more than we trust ourselves, Lord. So we pray that your spirit would be with us, guiding us, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I'm reading this fascinating book right now, one of many. It's called called The War for Righteousness, and what it's about, it's about leading at the late 1800s into the early 1900s, leading up before World War I, um, and how liberal theology, what we would now call progressive theology, had basically ditched the gospel in favor of a more civilized, more culturally acceptable gospel called the social gospel, which was that the gospel was this great uniting uh, benefactor force that was going to bring all peoples of the world together. There was a very post-millennial strain in it, which means that they really believed that the gospel was going to quickly bring all nations together under Christ, under this teaching of the gospel being the great benefactor to mankind. And what happened was, uh, without even realizing what happening, these progressive theologians thinking and believing that the gospel was this great unifier of all people Slowly shifted from being pacifists into into adopting the doctrine of total war to bring that unified state of the gospel worldwide, and it, they were the policy makers. They were the uh, they were they were the they were the clerics. They were the clergy behind the rulers of the day that were counseling and petitioning. Uh, the national leaders to enter into World War I. As we know, it's the war to end all wars is what they would call it because that's what they really believed. They believe that, first mistake, the gospel was this great unifying force for all mankind, and that second mistake, bigger mistake, that they would be able to use warfare to bring about this social gospel utopia. But the fact is, and what we see in this passage, uh, is that the gospel... Is does not is not the great unifier of mankind. In fact, it does quite the opposite. The gospel brings division, which is something we just uh, gosh I don't think we think about that all the time. You know what? There's, it, that's reflected in how we do evangelism. It's a, 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 how we do evangelism. How we look to evangelism. It's reflected in a lot of the more uh, utopian types of Christianity that are present uh, today in the church. But what Jesus is telling us and what John is telling us throughout this passage and throughout all the gospels really is that the gospel brings division. And so here's the big idea, the thesis we're going to talk about today, the one big lesson that John wants to get out of get out of this to us is this that because the gospel brings division between the proud and the humble we should trust God more than we trust ourselves. Because the gospel brings division between the proud and the humble, we should trust God more than we trust ourselves. So let's work through that idea one, one piece at a time. First, the gospel brings division. There's this great story, Ravi Zacharias. Most of you know Ravi Zacharias. He's an apologist who grew up in the East, he grew up in India. He's a native of of the, of the nation of India, Eastern, where he was immersed in Eastern mysticism and Eastern philosophy and everything as he grew up. And he, he travels around college campuses um, and he was at, the, at a certain college campus giving a speech um, as an apologist talking about the nature of truth, how the nature of truth is necessarily exclusive. If you deny one, if you affirm one thing, that it necessarily means you're denying something else, that there is an either-or aspect to truth. That's a Western understanding of truth. Um, that two truth truths cannot contradict themselves. If there are contradictory truths, they can't coexist with one another. One must be true, one must be false. Uh, he was expo- expounding this in his speech, and, there, and, and after the speech, a, a professor came up to him after the fact who was very much into an Eastern theory of truth, which is called a both-and theory of truth, which says that, Two contradictory versions of truth can exist together at the same time. They can coexist, and he took them out to lunch. And so here's this this white, affluent, young, Western professor trying to, like, school Ravi Zacharias on the Eastern theory of truth, of the both-and, going back and forth, drawing diagrams on the, on the placemats, using, you know, his cups and whatnot to make, you know, graphs, and... So finally, Ravi is listening politely and he, he, he stops and goes, okay, let me see if I get this straight. What you're telling me, are you trying to tell me that my theory of truth is wrong and that your theory of truth is right? And he goes, yes, now you're getting it. And he's like, so what you're trying to tell me is that when it comes to theories of truth, either I have to accept your theory or nothing else and the professor sat there for a minute stirring say stirred his coffee for 2 or 3 minutes and then he said it seems that the either or does emerge doesn't it <laughs> what's the point the point is that truth truth claims are exclusive and then therefore they can be they are divisive especially religious truth claims Which is such a hot button issue when one they can't when when there are two versions of ultimate foundational spiritual truth they can't both be right and because some people hold to this some people hold to this they cannot coexist together with some exceptions and that's this the gospel is divisive uh, because of what it says about us essentially. And here's the deal, man-made religious truths can exist and can coexist together because they all essentially say the same thing. And this is, how, this, is how you di- this is how you can discern or identify a man-made religious truth. And that is that a man-made religious truth says, essentially, when you boil it down to its essence, it says, I'm basically good and I just need a little help from something. Whatever that something may be. I, whatever's wrong with me, I can fix it if I have the right tools, or I have the right program, or I have the right meditation, or I have the right philosophy, or I engage in the right academic study, or I get the right self-help book, or I get the right prayer schedule, or I get the right quiet time, or I get the right, you this crossover into the Christian sphere of spiritual disciplines. It's something that we can do that will fix us because ultimately we're good and we just have some bad things that we need to fix, and we can do that. So ultimately, the man-made spiritual truth, when you boil it down to the bottom of its essence, believes that basically I'm good, all I need is a little help. And to that, Jerry Andrews, the pastor here at First Press, famously equips that if all I need is a little help, all I need is a little helper. And nobody wants to, I hope no one would want to call Jesus just a little helper. And so ultimately, here's, the, here's why they can coexist. They can coexist because ultimately the different helps that we use, the different paths, whatever those things are, can all, the helps can all coexist together because they're all just different aspects of fixing the different wrong things that are about us. But essentially, we are good. But the gospel, the, the reason the gospel cannot coexist in that big milieu of religious ideas Worldwide is because it says something fundamentally different at the core. It says that uh, you're not good, and it says it says it, it says it more than that. I mean, sensitive sensitive souls grab hold of something. It says that we're it says that we're not good in the strongest of terms. Reading through the Bible, uh, the the the. The, the opinion of mankind given throughout the Bible uh, is not one of people that are basically good that just need a little fixing. It's a picture of people who are corrupt down to the core of their being. That's what the Bible says about us and who we are. It's not just a matter of the sins that we do. I think everybody would be willing to say, hey, yeah, you know, I've, I've sinned or, or whatever you want to call it. I have some character defects I've lied, I've stolen some things, you know, I've done some people dirty. Yes, I'm guilty of doing some things that I am not proud of, but it's what the Bible says is that that's not ultimately what it is. It's not just the things we do, it's deeper than that. At the very core of our being, we are flawed in a way that makes us brutally self-centered and selfish. Who we really are. I have this, I'm sure people have been around here for a while, you've heard this before. I have a great experiment to give to people if they don't really believe that. And that is this. You just, if somebody doesn't believe that or doesn't think that they have real corruption in the core of their being, you just say, hey, here's what we're going to do. I want you to, for the next 48 hours, everything you think in your mind, I want you to say out loud to the person that you're with. What, what, what's so funny? What would happen? I told that, I told that to my, I told, talked about my buddy Nigel here before. I told that to my buddy Nigel and he goes, oh, I'd be divorced in a day. <laughs> the 48-hour test exposes, it does two things, if you really think about it. It does two things. Number one, it tells us who we really are in our innermost person, not, the, not, not what we project to the world. It tells us what's really going on in our heart, the kind of desires that we really have, the kind of um, what we would do if we thought we could get away with it, who we are in our innermost being, what is the nature of the character of our soul. And the second thing it teaches us is what we really do in the spiritual life, which is to cultivate the skill of hiding our true selves from the world, the mask that we put on. Uh, And here's the really bad news. The really bad news is that we can't fix it. All these other spiritual paths, all these things that we do to modify behavior, are really just putting, all we're really doing is just masking who we really are to the outside world so that we can appear to be more spiritual. And it actually fools ourselves into thinking that we're basically good and just need to fix a couple of things until you start speaking out loud everything that comes across your mind. So the gospel says that we in and of ourselves are weak and we are powerless and hopelessly corrupt in our inner being and too to. A pri- to To the natural person, you just can't say that. People lose their minds. You can't put that truth in the mix with the idea that we're all basically good and just need a little fixing and have it coexist with them. It is hopelessly opposed to that. And when you bring that idea in, it shows all of these ideas for what they really are, masks. And so these ideas have to get rid of these ideas and you have division. To the proud person, the gospel what the gospel implies about us is an intolerable truth. It's bad news for the proud, but it's good news for the humble. Because it's only against the backdrop of understanding how corrupt we really are that the true beauty uh, of the gospel emerges and we, become, we, des- we, be- we are able to desire it. Even more than that, we're able to be desperate for it. I, um, true story, Not what I'm proud of. I almost drowned off at Dog Beach in OB one year. I had thought, uh, I used to be a lifeguard on Catalina, and I would swim out a mile every day to this rock in the ocean, and I don't know how many years later it was after this, but I got down to the beach, and I was like, yeah, I can swim out, and so I swam out way farther than I should have past the breakers, and then I got a little scared, started swimming back in, and started running out of steam outside of the breakers, and it was literally going under. I was like, I didn't have any more strength to keep swimming, and I wasn't able to float, and the waves were like hitting me, and I was terrified. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw this kid on a boogie board, and I started screaming, help me, help me, help me. Uh, And this kid comes over, and he gives me his boogie board, and he brings me in to to where I can stand up. But in that moment, beyond the breakers, couldn't touch the bottom, going under, no more strength to swim, Um, I knew exactly my position in life. I was hope, I had no hope. I had no strength. I was weak, I was powerless, and I needed that boogie board with an absolute desperation, and I was unashamed to scream out for it. and he pushed it to me, and I was saved. I was thinking about this today, I was writing this, and I, just, I remember Charlie told me, I think it was, yeah, it was Charlie, a few days ago, told me the best analogy of the gospel ever. Because we think, you, have, you hear the gospel of, the, the analogy of the gospel is, man is drowning, and Jesus throws him the life preserver, or man is drowning, idiot man is drowning, and kid throws him the boogie board, and pulls him in, right? But that's not the gospel at all. The gospel is man is drowning Jesus jumps into the water, you both drown, and as he resurrects to life, he pulls you out of the waters of death. And that, to someone who is choking on the foamy swill of their own sin and tasting the saltiness of of the corruption of my being and going under and not having any more power to swim, that, idea is the most beautiful idea that I ever heard. And when the Lord opened my mind to it 12 years ago, and I finally heard it, I had to say, man, for a guy like me, that is good news. So the gospel, it brings division. Why? Because it is incompatible with all the other truth, religious truth claims in the world that wants to say that we're basically good and can just fix it with a little help. But although it's bad news for the proud, it's good news for the humble because we cannot save ourselves. It is only by the gracious gift of God's Son into the world, paying the penalty for our sin and raising us to life through his resurrection, are we able to be saved at all. So point one, the gospel brings division. Point two, the gospel brings division between the proud and the humble. Let's look at this now. I want to look at this shift camera. Let's look at this from another angle. Let's look at the fundamental differences between the proud and the humble that this passage teaches us. What does that mean? And the, the big difference between the proud and the humble is where we put ourselves in relation to God's revelation. And here's the thing, the proud put themselves in one way or another above revelation. And the problem with that, the, out, the, the fallout from that, the necessary consequence of putting ourselves, putting our reason, putting our religious systems above the revelation of God is that it will ultimately, our minds, our reason is not designed to operate in this vacuum of ideas. It's, operate, it's designed to operate uh, underneath the guidance of Scripture. And so when we put ourselves in any way, shape, or form above God's revelation, we begin to use our reason irrationally. We use our reason irrationally. And there's some fantastically scary examples of that in this text. Here's, the first one is the crowds. The crowds are using Scripture selectively to prove their own points. I, there's, a, there's a book called The Righteous Mind. If you have time, at least go and, and look at a, a, a summary of it. It is by a, a, a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, and he is a, a secular, he's an atheist, but it is, in my mind, one of the best Christian apologetic books on the market because what he's done, he's a sociologist, and what he did was he... he <laughs> He disproved what we think about ourselves. We think that we are these rational beings who come to our beliefs through this process of like reasoning through ideas. Um, and the book is—it was set out to find. The subtitle of the book is "Why Good People Differ on Religion and Politics." Um, and what he proved through all he did all kinds of social experiments, social uh, social uh, experiments, and he came to the conclusion. Through the social sciences, that what really happens, and I think we all know this is true, we just don't want to admit it, what really happens is that we have emotionally held beliefs, and then we go out and we look for reasons to defend them. We look for reasons to defend our, our, the, the beliefs that we hold emotionally, right? And so, is that called confirmation bias? Is that the right name for that? Where you st- there was a, a mem on, on on Facebook where. The guy was like, well, I need to research this myself. Ten minutes later, first, first ad on Google that agreed with what he already thought. And he pulls his glasses down and says, bingo. <laughs> you know, we do that. We are looking for arguments that already support the position that we have. We're looking for arguments that are justifying to ourselves. And the crowd is doing that here. They're using scriptural, scriptural arguments selectively um, as things come up to disprove who Jesus is. Remember... Last week, a couple weeks ago, um, the idea was, well, Jesus came um, and, and it said, you know, we know where you're from, but no one will know where the Messiah comes from. So they're saying, we know where you're from, but the argument is, there was, a, there was a, it wasn't even, it's not even a scriptural argument, really, it was another argument from the Judaic, from the rabbinic text saying that when the Messiah comes, he would be hiding out and then just make a grand appearance in the temple based off of... Malachi 3 and some other uh, scriptures talking about Jesus just showing up in this grand temple. And so when Jesus shows up and people know where he's from, they make this argument from this scripture over here. Well, nobody knows where he's from. And today they know he's from Galilee. And so the argument is, well, we know he doesn't come from Galilee. He comes from the town of Nazareth where David was born. Which implies that these people, they've got a working knowledge of scripture, right? They're not this isn't just guesswork. They have a working knowledge of scripture and they're using it to disprove the things that they know about Jesus. But what, what they admit is that they know he's from Galilee. So what about all the scriptures that talk about the Messiah coming from Galilee? I was reading Matthew the other day and I came across this. Matthew quotes this as a proof of, of Jesus at coming growing up in Nazareth. He says, "So that what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled: the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea by the, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of shadow and death, on them a light has dawned." Totally discounted that. Here's the man who's speaking in a way that no one else has ever spoke. Here's a man who's doing signs that no one but someone who comes from God could do. Here's a man who's explaining the meaning of the Old Testament in a cohesive, coherent way that brings all the promises of the Old Testament together and all these streams into one person. And they say, no, he's from Galilee, he can't be the Messiah, totally ignoring all these other scriptures. And, you know, here's where the sword turns in on us, because how, how well are we the masters of this technique? When Scripture opposes us, or when it says something that we don't like, how masterful are we of discounting certain strains of Scripture in favor of other ones, right? Which betrays that we have a working knowledge of Scripture, but we use it, for our own ends, you know, the things that we don't want to trust God with. Well, okay, mm, well, David had 10 wives, or, you know, you fill in the blank. There's all kinds of ways that we can use Scripture to prove the point that we want to prove rather than being obedient and trusting God against what, our, what, we are, what ourselves are telling us. Just wanted to, I don't want to really go deep into that. I just wanted to throw that out there for you to think about this week. Uh, here's the scarier one. The crowd, using Scripture selectively, the scarier one is the Pharisees. And what they've done is they've placed their religious system, their reason that has come up with this entire religious system that Jesus has been systematically undermining in the temple, they have placed their religious system above the very revelation that it's derived from. They've traced their tradition above the very scripture, the very revelation that it's derived from. How do we know that? When the cops, remember last week, they sent the cops out to get Jesus and to arrest him. And when they bring him back, when the cops come back, they say, they say, why didn't you bring him in? And, and the, the, you know, the pivotal verse in this whole scripture is where the cops say, no one ever spoke like this man. And their response to that is, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Listen to what they're appealing to. They're not, appe- they're not saying, hey, is what he's saying agreeing with scripture? Can you show us what he said? And can you show us how the water of life really means the rock that Moses hit and how it's fulfilled in him, they're not saying, hey, can you show us how this fulfills Scripture? They're saying, does he agree with us? We're the authorities. We know better than anybody. They have taken their, what they know to be true, what they believe to be true, and they placed it even above the ability of Scripture to test it. And here's what's so scary about that. And here's, uh, this is, this is also this demonst- This shows us the brilliant literary style of John. John, this is not. This is not a piece together backwater, uh, poorly written gospel. This is a work of literary beauty and brilliance. The way John has has laid this scene out and this stage out, and I'll show you, in a minute, it's super scary because of this. These the Pharisees are so blinded, by their pride. In a couple weeks, we're going to see Jesus tells them to their face, because you say you see, you are blind. They are so sure that they see and they are basing all of that on their own reason, on their own religious system. They're so absolutely sure that they're right and they're so blinded by that that everything they accuse, everybody else is actually more true of them than it is of the people they accuse. Look at The cops, okay? The cops come back. They've just come back from witnessing the scene in the temple. Jesus is upended the whole thing. He's just showed up in the temple like we talked about last week and on that glorious moment when the high priest poured the water representing the waters of salvation onto the altar of sacrifice along with the bread and the wine and the sacrificial ram, Jesus stands up and, says, and, and explains how all that's pointing to him, and they're just, they're blindsided by it. These are the cops, right? These are the temple guard, the temple military police. These are the Pharisees' right-hand strongmen, right? And they come back, and they say, and they say, why haven't you brought him in? And they say, no one has ever spoken like this man. And the Pharisees say, have you also been deceived? In the irony of the way John writes, he's letting the reader in. He wants us to see with a sadness. He wants a sadness to just settle into our hearts as we realize that in the midst of their blinding spiritual pride, that the Pharisees are actually the ones who have been deceived by their own pride. And Nicodemus, here's the brilliant literary structure, the literary story here. Nicodemus is is brilliant in his wisdom and in his evangelistic strategy. Nicodemus is the guy who went to see Jesus in chapter 3. Showed up at night because he's scared of his friends. And he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do these things unless God is with him. And he comes and he humbly wants to hear what Jesus has to say. And um, these men are just are angry, self-deceived. They're seething with anger at Jesus because the truth that he's proclaiming is contrary to this truth that they want to believe about themselves. And they have to get rid of this truth. And rather than Nicodemus just launching into a straight-ahead Evangelistic uh, appeal to these guys, he floats a question out to them. He goes, "Is it does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does?" The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being a lawbreaker, and Nicodemus, floating this gentle question out to them, says, is reminding them. Our law says that you cannot condemn this man without giving him a fair hearing, and so what you are doing right now is breaking the law. And John wants us to see that with a heavy heart. That blinded by self pride, we, you know, in 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 our in the in when legalism takes over our hearts, and the definition of legalism is wanting you to keep the law, not me. When legalism takes over our hearts, it blinds us in such a way that we begin to unconsciously break the very law we're trying to uphold. It creates hypocrisy. And the worst one is the final, the saddest part is what, what they say about the crowds in verse 749. He says, but this, they say, but this crowd, this crowd who's in their hearts searching, they're, they're groping through the dark trying to figure out who this man is. They're disagreed. Some are that the prophet that's getting there. There's some who have convinced that He's the Christ. They're, at least they're out there listening and groping, and the Pharisees say, "But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed." And they're getting that from Deuteronomy 27:26, which says, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them." Does that sound familiar? It's the same verse that Paul quotes in Galatians 3 when he makes the argument that that verse is one of the central verses teaching us what the law is. The law is not our way to life. The law is not what we do to fix those little things we need help with. But the law is to show us the absolute corruption of our, of our, of our souls, of our Core of our being. So John wants us to, our hearts to break at the blindness of these men who, through their pride, have just ironically judged themselves to be deceived, to be breakers of the law, and therefore accursed. The point one the gospel brings division. Two, it brings division between the proud and the humble. Three, The humble trust God more than they trust themselves. What makes the humble different? The proud, remember, the proud are those who place themselves over the revelation of God. They're not even willing to listen to it. Whereas the humble listen to the word of God. And the humble place themselves and submit themselves underneath what God says in his word. I've mentioned it a couple times, but here it is, the central verse in this passage and the one that it's meant to stick in our hearts the most is when when those officers, when the cops come back and they say, no one has ever spoken like this man. Isn't it interesting? As I'm reading through this, I'm meditating on it, it occurred to me what they said. No one has ever spoke like this man. They didn't come back and say, no one has ever produced signs like this man. Which isn't that what we would expect? Going to be convinced by the miracles? And how all the way up through this point, the, 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 the opinion of those who have believed in Jesus through the miracles is a fairly low bar. It's not a very high opinion. It characterizes them as spiritual consumers who are just looking for the next titillating religious thing. But here, again, it's focusing on the word, the word of God, what Jesus spoke. Listen, it happens three times. The word is focused on the crowds in verse 740 when they heard these words. The cops, verse 746, no one ever spoke like this man. And Nicodemus John brings it out twice. First in verse 750 where Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, bringing to our mind the story of when when Nicodemus humbly went to Jesus at night to sit and listen and hear him in humility. And then in verse 751, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? The focus that John is thrusting on us here is in the power of, of the words of Jesus, the power of the spoken words of Jesus and the power that they have to make things happen. Primarily, the power that the word of God, the power that Jesus' words preached, the power of Jesus' words that we still have in the Bible, the power it has to bring dead men and dead women to life. There is a, you know, in a Rosaria Butterfield is a uh, most of you know who she is? She was a, a former uh, professor. She uh, was uh, she had, had she was in a, a lesbian relationship for a long time um, with a woman, and she was a she was she had a healthy uh, what's a good word for it? um distaste <laughs> for Christianity. She is an academic, as someone who was was into reading texts and into hermeneutics and into into interpreting texts, was very much appalled at the level of, of, of thinking that Christians displayed for her. She would say that Christians would insert a Bible verse as if a period to the sentence rather than an opening of conversation, and that Christians were just poor readers. They didn't take the time to read and learn the arguments of the opposition, they would just insert. Their Bible verse, like a magic incantation, and expect God to do all the work with it. But she, so she hated Christianity, and she wanted to disprove. She wanted to, she wanted to learn more about the evangelical church. So she began reading and studying for uh, to to write a book on this, I believe it was. And so, in in the process of that learning about the the evangelical political thrust, is really what she wanted to learn about the religious right but she thought she would get the background by starting to read through the Bible. And as a a professor, as a voracious reader, she was cycling through the text over and over and over again. And one day she was at a party with all of her friends, and one of her friends was a trans woman who came up to her and said, cornered her in the kitchen and said, this Bible reading is changing you. And she looked at her and said, what if it's true? What if there's a holy Lord and what if we're under condemnation and what if we need to, what if we need to plead forgiveness for Jesus? What if, what if the gospel is true? And the trans woman said, honey, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. God never healed me, but I'll pray that he'll heal you. And she prayed and they prayed together. And the next day, outside of her office was a, bo- a box full of books by John Calvin and Martin Luther and he gave her her library. And, well, the rest is history. The rest, what happens is she becomes, she's reading through the text, she's hearing the word of God and the power of the word in her life begins to change her slowly and surely. The promises in Ezekiel come true for her. She can't at first accept what the, what the gospel says. She can't accept what it implies about her because she has a stony heart. But in the process of cycling through the text, the Holy Spirit drawing her into it, God gives her a new heart, a heart of flesh, which means a changeable heart, a growing heart, a heart that can be wounded but can heal and grow. And through that process, the power of the Word of God brings her from life into life. I got a buddy named David Lucas, East Coast gangster, came out here, was in a, in a cell... Uh, he got wrapped up for something. He was in a cell. He didn't want to join in with the gangs at the prison, so his own team was starving him out, wouldn't let him get food. Uh, and so he went into his cell. He found a Bible. He began reading through the text. And in the midst of his cell, reading through the text, the word of God had power and brought him out of death and into life. I could sit here, I could tell stories like this all day long. The focus of the humble is the power of the word of God to change us. And it doesn't stop once we become saved. It continues on in our sanctification. It continues on. Last story I'm gonna tell you. We have a professor, seminary professor named Dr. Baugh. And we we talk about his quotes and we say they're bossom because it's like a term that we use for him because they're just so great. Let me share one with you. He was talking about, about how hard this is. I mean, when, you know, in, in the course of our sanctification, the temptation to trust ourselves over and against what God's word says is so strong. It's so strong. Um, and he said, I was talking to him about it once, and he said, he said, you know, the longer I'm a Christian, the longer I go along in the faith, the less I believe how I'm feeling. And the more I believe what God's word says. And isn't that, like just, isn't that like a wrecking ball for the cultural ideals of our day? We are immersed in this, these ideas from morning till night and in, in every conceivable media that how we feel determines truth. And determines what is right and good even though we know experientially that that's just not true right i had this this great postcard that said had a picture of a guy with a beer drunk at the bar and he goes i followed my heart and i'm at the bar <laughs> again <laughs> when we follow our hearts not not good things happen but when we when we don't when we mistrust how we feel and we say look i feel awful i want to quit I'm never doing, I don't want to go on with this, (laughs) whatever it may be. I'm not, I can't hold up. I don't want holiness. I want this. (sighs) You're saying what the promise here for us is, and this is why don't you take home. The promise for us is that what Jesus is telling us, if we disregard that fickle feeling that we have, if we disregard it and instead of trusting ourselves and trusting our feelings, if we look, just look to God's word and his promises and we trust that more than what our feelings are trying to tell us, he's saying that we will be blessed by it. It will grow in us. And what I've been learning these last few weeks is that that is a continual process. It's not, you know, what I, what I tend to do is um, get tempted, run to the Bible. Okay, that's bad. Temptation, run to the Bible. We're doing these fixes, spiritual disciplines as fixes for things that are wrong. What God's been teaching me, especially this year, is no. it is a constant immersion in the holiness of God, in the beauty of God, an immersion in prayer, an immersion in his word that recreates the atmosphere that we breathe and produces naturally holiness in our lives because we desire, we it, it, starts to re-create our hearts into into hearts that desire the beauty of God and the glory of God and the things of God and we develop, like I talked about last week, we lose our taste for Coke, we begin to pick up our taste for pure rivers and waters of life. So, the gospel brings division because the proud cannot stand what the gospel implies about us but The gospel is very good news for the humble because it promises us a salvation that we could never otherwise earn or gain on our own. It divides between the proud and the humble. The proud put their selves, their reason, their religious system over and above God's revealed word and doesn't even allow it to be tested. Whereas the humble, we submit ourselves to under the revelation of God, what God's word has spoken to us and through that we witness it having the power to bring dead people to life, to increase us in our spiritual lives uh, and to recreate the world that we live in and change our hearts to love and, and adore the things of God. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your, for your word, for your blessing. Uh, You are a good and wonderful Father and we love you. Lord, we pray, um, Lord, that you would help us learn all kind of things through your word, Lord, and not just to hear it, but to be living it as we go out this week. Lord, we are going to be tempted in a million different ways to place our own reason above what we know to be true in the word, to place our own feelings above what we know your word says. And Lord, we pray that you would By the power of your Spirit, protect us and grow us in such a way that we would grow in holiness and grow to be the lights in the world that you would have us be. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to focus ourselves into a rhythm of prayer individually and in groups and church wide. Lord, we pray that you would increase our ability to pray, increase our desire to pray, and make it a foundational reality of our lives. We pray that you would give us the desire and and the the fortitude to be in your word and to be letting it wash over us, letting your word and its power wash in and over us. And we pray that through that you would bless us, Lord, to see people coming to faith here at our church, in our places of work, in our families, in, in our friendships, and in this network of people that you have placed us in, Lord, so that we might grow Uh, and see the blessing of people coming to life, Lord. So we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name.